uh, good to be with you again to bring the word, especially in light of what's gone on this morning. I feel like I need to preach last week's message over again. You know, it's it's always applicable. It, it always feeds and counsels our hearts, and it certainly does that for me. When I had been preparing to preach one thing, then about a month or so ago, I decided to scrap that and start over again and felt that God was taking me in a different direction, in the direction which we're going now, Job being a significant part of that. I know he has had a significant impact in each of our, and many of our lives, uh, mine as well. I was growing up, I grew up in the church, and I was always really intimidated by Joe. He was the big, hulking, scary figure in the back, and it has been my pleasure since I grew up. I actually... I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I had the reputation when I was in high school of being the person who pranked everyone, particularly at camps where we would come equipped with a suitcase, uh, Steve would remember, of jolt soda, uh, fully caffeinated, and saran wrap, duct tape, anything else that we could possibly need. And through my, my six years of snow camps, I never got pranked one single time. And then we put a work group together to go up and work at the, as adults. I had just graduated from high school. For the first time, I woke up with shaving cream all over my face, with a Joe Johnston running away, skipping, laughing, and giggling. And it's like, like unbelievable. Like, I, I make it through six years of, of youth camps and brought the fear upon everyone. And then Joe Johnston gets me out of all people. And that was the beginning of, of a long friendship at that point and had the privilege of being able to work with him one summer out of college. We were surveying and we would seem to spend more time in the van talking about the Bible. He would open up his middle console, whip out the Bible, open it up and point a verse to me and say, so what does that mean? Because I'd been to a whole year of Bible school at that point. And, and so clearly I was the, uh, the expert on things and I had no idea. But it was great to get to see him and to know him and to see his humility with the word of God and to see his passion to make Christ known. If you know anything about G- about Joe, it's that he wanted people to know about Jesus and to know that Jesus is God. It is obviously very sad to see what is happening, but in God's sovereignty, it's not outside of his plan. There's not a rogue molecule on Joe's body. It is my desire to have the impact on someone else's life that he had on mine. Going back to what we talked about last week, God puts us in situations sometimes that there is no reasonable explanation for how we can get out of it except his sovereignty. And I still believe that. But I wanted to to add an addendum on to what it is that we we went through last week. Uh, Because God does put us in impossible situations uh, on a regular basis. Uh, And those impossible situations sometimes seem more and more impossible as they they repeat uh, and as we get further on in our life. He puts us in those situations so that we can learn from him, so that we can learn about who he is, his nature, his power, his faithfulness to us. But God doesn't always part the seas. We should pray expectantly that God parts the sea. But God doesn't always part the sea. Sometimes the army gets us. But when the army gets us, our eyes should be like Stephen, right? Our eyes should be on Christ the author and finisher of our faith, not on the army, not on the stones. just wanted to give that addendum to, to last week's message that God doesn't always part the seas, but he always 
puts us in situations for our good to learn from him and to grow. Last week, we looked at the refining flames of God in the wilderness and the situations that he put Israel in to teach them and to prepare them for the promised land, to teach them how to become a nation for his glory, to serve and represent him, to live in expectation of his faithfulness and power. A common theme throughout the wilderness is, I will bless you for obedience and I will curse you for disobedience. So this is what it looks like to be obedient. Well, this week we're going to take a look at a different facet of what God was trying to teach them and show them. I want you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. As you're turning there, uh, there is, as we had said before, uh, there was going to be no king to lead them. There was not going to be that singular leader that they even experienced now and during the conquest. During their time in the wilderness, they had Moses and Aaron leading them. During their time of the conquest, they had Joshua continuing to lead them. And once they got into the promised land, they weren't going to have that. Those those men weren't going to be there. There was no federal government uh, to be in charge of them. There was no uh, singular person uh, to, to lead them and to, to set the direction. And God knew this and was using this time to prepare them to serve him in the wilderness. And one of the most significant ways in which they were going to do that as a nation was through the the context of the family that god knew that they needed to be serving god on a family level and if they were doing that then the nation as a whole would be honoring god on 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 the uh, on the, uh, the at the nation scale and we can see how important a God-honoring family is. And we can, we can all see that the role of the family is fairly significant, even takes just a casual uh, glance at our nation today to see the consequence of the broken family. Uh, that our nation is littered, the landscape is littered with broken families, with families that let alone don't serve God, don't proclaim the greatness of God, but don't stay together and and teach and provide some stability for their children. All it takes really is one generation to realize the consequences of the failure at home. One generation. And that's unfortunately all it took for Israel. Now, before we get into chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 Uh, God says, only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. One of the themes that we see throughout the book of Deuteronomy, this is the second telling of the law before they're about to enter into the land, uh, the conquest of the land. And in the second telling of the law, there's a common theme throughout it. The importance of proclaiming the greatness and goodness of God to your children, to the family. And as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 6, we, we see this theme throughout this chapter. And we're, what we're going to do this morning is walk through Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then we're going to fast forward past the conquest and see uh, how it is that uh, Israel did or did not heed these words of instruction uh, to them before they 
uh, went through the conquest. So as we start in verse 4 of chapter 6, we start with a very well-known verse uh, to, to the Jew. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what's known as the Shema in Israel. The Shema is uh, what it is like the most holy phrase for them. It is the, the summation of everything for them. Uh, that we'll, we'll talk about what's known as phylacteries later on. Uh, but they would write this on vellum, wrap it up, and put it in a box. Uh, and then they, uh, if you go into a, a home of a Jewish person even today, you'll see a little uh, scroll that's on the doorpost. And inside that, that little glass vial that's kind of stuck to the doorpost is the Shema. It is this verse that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, and he is appealing Moses is appealing to God, to, to the children of Israel at this point to, to worship God, to worship God. He says, you shall love, verse 5, the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That, that's not a New Testament idea. That, that's not a New Testament thought, that this was always the intention to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. So the, he starts off with a charge in, the, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. To love the Lord your God with everything. That everything is to be surrendered over to subjection to Yahweh. That he is everything. And then out of that he calls them now to write the words of the Lord upon their heart. To write the words of the Lord upon their heart. In verse 6. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise. You need to write these words on your heart. They need to have a prominent location in your life. They're not casual things that we take off a shelf and bring on Sundays and then put away the rest of the week until the next Sunday rolls around. That they are to play a prominent role in the home. And he starts us off by charging them, teach them to your children. Teach these words to your children. Teach them diligently. That word diligently communicates the idea that this is to be purposeful. This is not a casual pursuit. This is not something that you do when something happens, something tragic happens or something confusing happens. Your kid comes to you and says, you know, why, why is this happening in our life? And so then you, you give them some sort of proverb and pat them on the head and send them away and hope that they, you, you answered them correctly. That this is a purposeful pursuit of your children to teach them the word of God. This means that it is planned not haphazard. Now, God has been very gracious to me um, in, in, in my life. And one of the things that I have loved is uh, being able to, to parent two children and to counsel them in the word and to consistently uh, to take them through the word that, that you have to. And this is, part of this message is going to be an appeal to the family and to appeal to the, the, the fathers specifically of children. To, to make a purposeful time to teach and to train your children in the Word of God. That learn what it is, where are they? Where are they in their thinking? 
How are they thinking? How do they need to be counseled? At what point? Now, we have been dealing, uh, as, as every family does, you deal with your, your children's sin on different levels at different times. And, and I don't know about you, but sometimes you find yourself saying, look, you need to deal with this sin, okay? You need to deal with this sin. Do not let it grow out of control. And you hear yourself saying these things, and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm telling my kid to deal with his sin. And then I walked away from it, and I was thinking, I'm telling my kid to deal with their sin, and they have no idea how to do that. Like, that's true. Deal with your sin. Yes, deal with your sin. Kill your sin. Deal with sin. Or it, kill your sin or sin will be killing you, as John Owen said. That is a message that they need to learn at a young age. But they don't know how to do that. And so you send them away and say, you need to go pray about that. You need, you need to spend time in prayer before God. And so it's teaching them all of these things. Teaching them how to pray. Teaching them how to deal with sin. Teaching them how to deal with temptation how to deal with concern and questions, how to read the Bible. Now, unfortunately, we leave a lot of those responsibilities to Sunday school teachers. But fathers, it is your responsibility ultimately to do that. Help them at a young age to learn to deal with sin, to learn to understand the word of God. It wasn't the responsibility of the priest. It wasn't the responsibility of Moses or Aaron or Joshua, to teach the children. It was the responsibility of the family. Your greatest responsibility while you have children in the home is to make God known to them and to make God great to them. That, the greatest thing you can instill in your children is a high view of God. And that is exactly what Moses here is pleading to them. It says, talk about these things at all times. When you're sitting down, when you're walking, when you're lying down, when you're getting up. You, you, you get the sense here that Moses is saying that the word of God should have a pretty central role in your family's life. That you're to be talking about it at all times. This is to be the conversation, the, the theme of our conversations with our children. Even with your spouse. And then he says... Speak the word at all times, but also make the word of God prominent in your home. Make the word of God prominent in your home. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now they took this very literally. And you've seen Orthodox Jews would have a, a black strap wrapped down their arm, have a box uh, and another one on their forehead, uh, those are phylacteries. And those they're literally binding the word of God to them. Now, we want it to be more than just a, a, a physical manifestation. That, that, it, it's, that is a very literal interpretation, and that's good, but that's not enough. That's not where it ends. That the word of God is to play a prominent role in your house. Put scripture, we, we, one of the great things that we have uh, that, that I love is make scripture prominent in your home. And we have, we get the stickers that you can get and they can print out and you just put scripture and you peel it up and you, you like stick it on your wall. And how great is that? Like there, now it's there and it's there to remind you. It's there to counsel your heart. It's there to counsel your children's heart. It's there to counsel the heart of your neighbors when they step foot in your kitchen. 
and they see the word of God proclaimed on your wall. That the word of God is to be a, a, a central heartbeat of your home. So you make it make it prominent. And then he says in verse verse 10, as we continue to just walk through this, says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It says, remember the works of the Lord. The reason why we bind the word of God upon our hearts, the reason why we, we dedicate ourselves to knowing and understanding the word is so that we can understand and we can remember these things and remember the goodness of God to recount them. And do you find it odd here that Moses says, in verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. Take care lest you forget the Lord. And maybe some of the hearers might be thinking, like, how, how could I possibly forget the goodness of God and what he has done? And they can remember the things that we talked about last week. Food falling from the sky. There every morning when they wake up. Water flowing out of a rock. A pillar of cloud and fire leading them every day. The glory of God enveloping a mountain before them. How, how could they forget these things? How could they forget God? But it's too easy for our hearts to do that, right? It's easy for us to depend upon God when things are difficult. That's the easy part. The hard part is to depend upon God when they're not difficult, when they seem to be going well. And things aren't as urgent and you start to forget your dependence upon God. Now, I think a good way of illustrating this for us and our minds, um, for those that are, are my age and older, is, is to look to someone. Now, Josiah, when were you born? 1999. Okay. So the, the events of September 11th, 2001 are probably like really sharp in your mind, right? As a two-year-old, like... That if, if you talk to anyone who was of a, an age to remember, each one of us can remember very clearly the events of 9-11, right? We all remember exactly where we were on that day. I was actually in Jerusalem, out of all places. I was in Jerusalem, and we were at a, a model of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Solomon. And I remember a guard running out of the guard shack and running over to us, and this is, you know, before it was 2001, so not everyone had handheld devices and everything. And and I remember him just communicating the urgency of the situation, what was going on. And they shuffled us all back onto the bus real quickly, and we're listening to the radio in Arabic. And our teacher, our professor, was translating for us as we're going back to uh, the Moshav to where we're staying. And I remember in Israel watching and and watching the TV and what was going on so many thousands of miles away back home and and then sitting out and we could hear the celebrations 
from the, the, the village of Abu Ghosh, which was uh, a Muslim village uh, just on the other side of the valley from us. And we could hear them celebrating the victory that they had had that day. And people celebrating in the street and waving Palestinian flags. And it is etched in my mind. There is no way I'm going to forget those sights and those sounds. But you communicate that to someone who's younger and they may know contextually about that and the facts of it and be able to be able to communicate some of those things. But that urgency, that, that freshness, that reality isn't there in their minds. And so you, you take that, and I think that's a little bit of an illustration for, to, under, to help us better understand Israel. And like, how could, you, how could you forget water coming out of a rock and food falling from the sky? Well, unless it is your, your, your dedicated purpose to teach your children about those things, then it's not going to be as significant to them. It's not going to be fresh in their mind. And so the children of Israel needed to pass it on to the next generation who couldn't remember, who didn't experience those things. So take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Well, these are the consequences, folks, for Israel. Remember these things. Teach these things. Or this is what I will do to you. Now, I had uh, Pastor Russ read through uh, some of Psalm 106 uh, for me. And you read through that whole passage, and the, the whole chapter there is all about remembering the goodness of God and then the failures of Israel after that, and then the goodness of God in response to that. And, and Psalm 106 is really a summation of everything that it is that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you today, to remember the goodness of God, and then to remember how quickly our hearts get pulled away from, from that from that knowledge. Now, as we skip down to verse 20, um, I call this Moses's family catechism. Okay. Moses family catechism. The, as he wraps up uh, this, this chapter, chapter six, uh, we, we see a question here. Verse 20 says, when, when your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord, our God has commanded you? So this is when your kid comes to you and says, Dad, why do we have all of these rules? Right? You, can, you can imagine that conversation, right? right? Dad, the, the, the Canaanites over here, they don't look like this. They don't have to grow their hair out like this. Why do I have to look weird, Dad? Why, why do we... Why, they're eating pig and they say it tastes great. Why can't we do that, God, Dad? Why, why, why are we like this? Why do we have this law? Why do we have to go and make these sacrifices all the time? Why do we have to do this, Dad? And put yourself in, in your own shoes, and I'm sure the time is going to come for my children. Dad, why can't I go to the dance? I, don't, I have no idea what dance my kids are going to be invited to, but 
But I, I can tell you, my, my nephew, um, before my sister was able to get married, my, my nephew uh, was living outside of Boston and had dances that he wanted to go to. And so my sister would talk to him and explain to him, and then he wouldn't listen to her. And so she would say, why don't you call Uncle Tim? And so Uncle Tim would get on the phone, and I'd try to explain it to him and explain to him, why don't you do these things? Why do, why, Nehemiah, why does, his name's Nehemiah, why, why does your life look different? Why do you have a different set of expectations and rules than all your other friends around you? And so we can understand the question here, right? Dad, why can't we be like all the parasites around us? Why can't we be like them? And this is Moses' answer. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The first thing he shares with them is gospel truth, deliverance. He shares with them the gospel. Why do we have to do these things, son? Because God saved us. The first response when is, why do we have to do these things? Why do we have these rules? It wasn't to, to, to be uh, laborious and to have it be heavy-handed and because God hates fun. <laughs> it was because God saved us because of the gospel. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, verse 22, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us from there and that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Grace, grace, grace. Why do we, why do, we do these things? Because God's grace compels us to. Because God is good to us. Because he has delivered us. Because he has given us victory. And he has given us more victory than he gave to Israel. He gave us a spiritual victory over our sin through the cross. Verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these things. He gave us these rules. He gave us these statutes. So that we would fear the Lord our God. Now as everything in, in my life relates to the book of Romans. We go back to Romans chapter 1. And what were, now foundations class members, you can shout this out. What were the two main failures of humanity that we see in Romans chapter 1? That man what? Refused to what? Honor God and Give thanks to God, right? They refuse to honor God, refuse to give thanks to God. And then we see in Romans chapter 3 that there was no fear of God in their life. There was no fear of God. He said he, he gave us these things so that we should fear God, so that we should worship God. And that fear, not, not, not a, a, a frightening fear like you're going to, you know, don't touch the stovetop because you're going to get burnt but a respect and a, a, a fear that creates a desire to serve and to worship. And then he says, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. 
So why, why do we follow these laws, Tommy? Moshe, why do we follow these laws? We follow these laws because God is good to us, because God delivered us, because he has given us victory, because he desires for us to serve him, to fear him, and for our good always. In verse 25, what is the result? It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. And the promise is true. And this is all the way through Deuteronomy. I will bless you for obedience and I will chasten you and discipline you and curse you for disobedience. Now the charge is clear. God and his word were to be the central for the family in Israel. When it is center of the family, it will be the center of a nation. Now let's fast forward. I want you to turn to the book of Judges. We're going to skip the conquest. Okay? Fast forward to Judges. Chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. So as you're turning uh, to fill in some historical context here for those that uh, may not be familiar, uh, the nation of Israel goes into the land and they conquer the land. Resounding victories, right? That we read about throughout the book of Joshua. And in the beginning of uh, the first chapter of the book of Judges. Victory after victory piling up. And God, just as when they exited the land of Egypt, God divided the waters and they walked through. And how do you think they entered the promised land? God divided the waters. Now, the, the generation of the, the exodus had died off in those 40 years. Okay? They wandered around the wilderness for their punishment, for for their lack of faith uh, and trust in God and not going into uh, the land that he had prepared for them. And they had died off. So now another generation comes, a generation rises up, and they hear the stories of their parents that had told them of everything that happened in the Exodus. And But God continues to teach and to train them and to share the word of God with them, the law with them in Deuteronomy, and prepares them for the conquest. And they go in and they see... They walk around a city and blow some horns and it fell. Okay? Jericho. (laughs) That God is showing them, I will win these victories. And he tells them, I will win the battle for you. Just go and obey and I I will win the battles. I will fight for you. And so they see victory after victory pile up. They saw the consequences for disobedience in Achan when he hid the treasure that was supposed to be devoted for destruction. And he hid it and he took some of it. And then they went against the JVAI crew. And they said, oh, only send up a few thousand people. We don't need to keep everyone here. Like, yeah, send the freshman team up and then they can, they can go and, and uh, fight that battle. And they got resoundly defeated. And like, whoa, what's going on? I thought we were going to win. Only to find out that Israel had not been obedient all the way down to one person. And God was showing them, you disobey, it will not go well with you. But now, Judges chapter 2, verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So now they spread. Joshua gives them a final charge. It says, serve the Lord your God, be brave. Serve the Lord your God. 
And now they spread out throughout the land. They go back to the parts of the land that had been promised to them and allocated for their tribe and for their clan, for their family. Verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So this generation of the conquest, they are staying true and staying strong for God. They are being obedient. They are kicking the families out, most of them, the most of the Canaanites out of the land. And then verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries of the inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. So Joshua dies. And you will not believe what is written in verse 10. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. So the generation of the conquest is dead. They're gone. They're dead. They're, they're buried. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And we read that verse and we ask ourselves, how is that possible? How can a generation rise up and not know the goodness of God? Because they did not do Deuteronomy chapter 6. They did not train their children. They did not teach them about the goodness of God, about the power of God, about the holiness of God. They did not know Yahweh. It only takes one generation, folks. <laughs> it only takes one generation, right? We see this in our own world today. It only takes one generation. The generation after the conquest did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. And what do we see in the next verse? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> we could not predict this. We could not predict this. The immediate consequence of not knowing God is idolatry. Read through Psalm 106 again. Some of the heinous things that Israel did right after the conquest. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. They served the Baals, the fake stone gods that God had so clearly said, I am greater than. I, they, they don't compare with me. And those people looked at Israel when they came into the promised land and said, wow, you have a God that talks to you. My stone idol doesn't talk to me. My Baal doesn't talk to me. When it doesn't rain, I have to say, Baal, what did we do? What did we not do to make you mad, to make you angry? And they run after the Baals. In verse 12, they abandoned Yahweh. They abandoned the Lord. 
the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And I want you to see uh, a theme through here, repeated word or phrase, okay? So they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. God was so faithful. God was so good to them. God had shown them time and time again, I will provide for you. Depend upon me. Come to me. And they got in and said, oh, that's a cool looking idol. Let me worship that with you. Maybe it will help my crops grow even better. And they start worshiping these gods. They abandon the Lord. They provoke the Lord to anger. And just as God said, if you do this, I will turn you over and I will make you miserable. And he did it. He turned them over in the book of Judges. Is time and time again, the cyclical nature of them pursuing other gods, God turning them over to other people, them crying out to God. And you know what's amazing? Verse 16. The Lord raised up judges. God listened. They cried out to God. And God had every right to say no. No. I have been more than patient with you. You need a longer time out. You need a longer captivity. Eventually that comes. You need longer consequences. But God, God hears them. What kind of God delivers a people for his purposes for his glory and then has those people turn against him and say well thanks for the land i'm gonna go worship these gods now and then turns around and says i'm gonna deliver you again only for them to be delivered and say oh thank you and then another generation die off and them say oh look at this over here it's shiny and go over there and then get thrown back into captivity get thrown back in under another oppressor and God say, I'll deliver you again. I'll deliver you again. Because God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. Praise God. God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. The people of Israel failed before they even entered into the land. Because they failed to teach their children about God. But God did not leave them there. God did not abandon them. God chastened them. 
God punished them, gave them severe consequences. But God is a God of pursuit. Our God is a God of pursuit. It is true that he does hate sin. It is an abomination to him. Our sin is an abomination to him. And every time Israel turned around and did not heed the counsel and the word of God, he would punish them. And as we now approach the Lord's table, let us remember that this is not the story of Israel. This is the story of humanity. This is our story. And praise God, when we ran after other gods, when we exchanged the glory of God for a lie, when we said, I'll worship the creation rather than the creator. When we rebelled against God, God didn't say, get away from me. I'm done. God is a God of pursuit. God pursued us all the way to the cross. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So first, let me say, if there's anyone here this morning who has been running that hellbound race, who can identify more with, with Israel, maybe you recognize that you have scorned the faithfulness of God in your life and you have gone on living your life exactly the way that you want to, time after time. The good news is that God is a God of pursuit. And he does not leave you there. And just as Israel cried out to God for deliverance, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we cry out to him. Praise God. Praise God. He doesn't leave us there. He delivers us to the point of delivering up his own son for us. God's perfect love and sovereignty keeps us and holds us secure. That even now, as, as, as um, I forget Russ or Randy, our hearts are prone to wander, right? And it's one of those phrases that you can't say prone to wander without then saying, Lord, I feel it, right? So you ha- it has to be said together. Our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. But God does not leave us there. So let, let, me, let me close with these words of, of counsel, of admonition. Of first, learn from Israel's wilderness. Okay? God is faithful that he is bringing you through circumstances to teach you very specific things about yourself and about him. Use those situations to build within your heart an attitude of worship and resolve for his glory. And then... Don't stop there. Invest that into your children. Make sure your children know God's greatness. Do not let them leave your home without knowing the goodness of God. That is your greatest responsibility while there are children in your home, is to make them know the greatness of God.
so that when they're out on their own, when they're living their own life, the same can't be said of Israel and judges that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, they may not embrace the truths of the word of God. We pray to that end. They may not embrace those truths, but they should not be able to leave your home and not know what the Bible says and not know the works of God. And we pray that further on down the road, I grew up with Sam Johnston. I grew up with Sam and Amanda Um, we went to youth group together. We went to VBS together. We all heard the same words. We all heard the same stories. We all heard the same gospel. And so we pray that further on down the road, when your children are on out of the house, if they do not embrace the word of God, that that seed is there, that God can use that at any time for his glory. And lastly, let me encourage us and our own wandering hearts. As we now approach the Lord's table, let us recall and remember the faithfulness of God in our own lives, that we were running that hellbound race, that we were doing the same things as Israel was. But we had a Savior who loved us to the cross. So let us think about that as we approach the table.